0: Thank you. We're ready for our second case, Betts versus NC Department of Health and Human Services. We're ready to hear from the appellants. Let us know if you want to reserve a little time.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. Um, my name is Vernon Sumwalt from the Mecklenburg County Bar, and we would like to reserve five minutes for a rebuttal if that's all right. Okay. This appeal asked a pure question of statutory construction. It asked what our legislature meant in 2011 when it amended. The statute and the Workers' Compensation Act dealing with extended compensation, and our legislature picked a six-word phrase that we've known for eight decades: total loss of wage earning capacity. We know what these words mean, and in the room where it happens, and Mr. Hamilton over here was in that room. There are a lot of words you could choose from, but the six that came out that were written on paper were total loss of wage earning capacity. And I've you say
2: we've known what they meant. We knew, we, But has it, has it been, have those words appeared in the general statutes?
1: Before? Yes. Um, if you look at the section of uh, disability, section 97-2, subsection 9, it talks about disability and the loss of wage earning capacity. A um, little bit different order, and I know that that…
2: Um, well, that's what I'm getting at, but has the phrase total loss of wage earning capacity, has that… Has the, had the legislature ever used that before?
1: Yes. Loss of wage earning capacity means disability. Total is the adjective. And Section 9729 only deals with total disability. Section 9730 deals with partial disability. Now, total and partial deal with the degree of disability. When we're talking about temporary and permanent, we're talking about the duration of disability. And what we're proposing is when we're talking about extended compensation, it's only about the duration of disability.
2: But the reason I'm asking the question, and just just to be clear, that entire phrase, though, do, was not in the general statutes until the amendment, right? It, not together. Right, and not the reason together. I'm making that point is, so it's there's a long-standing canon of construction because the, we assume the legislature knows the law. So if the legislature uses language and then the courts say, this is what this means, and then they keep using it, we presume that they understand in that statute that it has the meaning the courts have. But I think what your friends uh, are going to argue here is that's never happened in this case. Instead, what as the courts have done is they've used this phrase. That this is what we think it means. But the courts can't prevent the legislature from saying we're just going to write a law that uses plain English. This is the most you know the plain and ordinary meaning of what we're trying to accomplish. So use that. Don't we don't care what the courts have said. So what's your response to that? My
1: response to that is Judge Tyson from this court said you can't do that. And I'll read. Um, I'll I'll quote the rule a little bit better. And I'll attribute it to who it said. It. Nothing is to be added to what the text states or reasonably implies. That is, a matter not covered uh, is to be treated as not covered. That's first rule. The second is words are to be understood in their ordinary, everyday meanings unless the context indicates they bear a technical sense. Now, it's a little bit different phrasing of the rule. Judge Tyson, we cited the case that uh, Miller versus BHP Enterprises, where Judge Tyson says look, when you have a technical sense of the words, you've got to go with it. When you've got, as we've said, 34 cases from this court and seven cases from the Supreme Court defining total laws of earning capacity, you've got to go with that. These rules came from Justice Scalia. If, if you read his book, Reading Law, where he gives the you know, Kansas Statutory interpretation, he is saying this is what the rule is, and he agrees with this. He says, words would be understood in their ordinary, everyday meanings, meaning the Webster sense, unless the context indicates they bear a technical sense, and that's why we looked to the 34 Court of Appeals cases and the seven Supreme Court cases that have looked at total loss of wage earning capacity to mean simply total disability, with the usual ways we prove disability. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the statute—
0: So what does total disability mean as opposed to partial disability? What's the difference?
1: It's a difference of degree. Uh, total disability is, is the complete loss of earning capacity, meaning that if you earn this much before your injury, you, you can't earn that much. Partially is you'd earn this much, in which case you get two-thirds of the difference. But it's the degree of disability. It's not how long you get it. It's the degree. Um,
0: so if I'm totally disabled, that means I can't work at all.
2: Right. Are but you saying doesn't...
0: loss of wage earning capacity is the same, means the same thing as disability? Absolutely. Okay, so here you would have to show that your client can't earn anything. Correct. And then they would be entitled to this forever.
1: Not forever. Or, or past five, 500 yeah. weeks. Not forever. Um, and that's the 800-pound the gorilla in the room. I think they've raised, you know, why isn't this a retirement system? The, the methods of proving total disability, this court has articulated in Russell versus Lowe's, that's been adopted by our Supreme Court, at least, you know, endorsed by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court also said there's other ways to prove total disability. The methods of proving disability are well-known in the workers' compensation fields. All you have to do is shepherdize Russell to see how many times this court has talked about the four Russell methods of proving disability. But the 800-pound gorilla in this room is what you just asked. Why is it just a retirement plan? Why is there a free ride to sell off into the sunset for retirement? And again, this is a case of pure statutory construction. Just read the statute. So disability means if I make $100,000 a year at a job
0: and I get hurt, and all I can do is go work and make $40,000 a year, I'm disabled because I can't make the same amount of money that I did before. Is that correct? That's correct. But you're partially disabled. Under 97.2 or whatever the definition. Whatever the definition. That's the definition of disability. But I'm only partially disabled. Correct. Okay. so if I'm totally disabled, it means I can't earn anything.
2: Right. Okay. so. So if you're right about that, why didn't the legislature just use the word disability?
1: It is already defined disability and total loss of earning capacity. Um, let me show you the statute, because the legislature did use disability. I don't need to dodge the question. Um,
3: can we see Elmo? Can
1: you all see what's up on the
3: Elmo right here? Yes, we
1: should be able to. Uh, um, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you, there's a little bit of a red herring. In now I, we can. have made this argument about clarif- clarifying amendments, <laughs> you know, new amendments. It, it, there's a little bit of alphabet soup going here, a little bit of both. But look at the the very first sentence in subsection A of section 9729. This is the amended statute. It says, when an employee qualifies for total disability, there's a the word. The employee shall pay or the employer shall pay or cost be paid as here as here and after provided by subsections B through D. And we're talking about extended compensation. We're talking about subsection C, which is right in the middle of that. That language in yellow that I've highlighted is new language. That's language that they added in 2011 because they added these subsections. So it is impossible to say, this language does not deal with disability. And again, I'm gonna, you know, wrote down some favorite uh, quotations here from Reading Law. Material within an indented subpart relates only to that subpart. You know, if you're isolated the subsection C and you're only looking at subsection C, you know, you're focused in that. The rest of this rule is important. Material contained in unindented text relates to all of the following or preceding indented subparts. So, but I'm not even sure you have to get into that. I think you just read it and say the legislature said when you're getting total disability, you look at subsections B through D, and that's inclusive of subsection C, which is the extended compensation.
2: But if, if the distinction is between total and partial disability, why not use those terms instead of changing it to the total loss of wage earning capacity, which then raises this question because it, we know that total disability, partial disability, are talking about, are not talking about the length of time. They're talking about uh, the type of disability, right. how extreme it is. So, but here, when we know that the word total has another meaning, so by, by doing it here, if you're right, the legislature wrote it in a way that just as ex- creates an extreme ambiguity when there's another way to interpret it, this says, well, they just meant the plain English if you stop somebody on the street and said, what does it mean to have total loss of wage earning and incapacity? And a person on the street is going to say, you must, you know, be a quadriplegic or you must have gone blind and you can't move or, you know, that sort of thing. So, right. Well, let's walk the
1: dog down the road a little bit. Let's say it is ambiguous. What's the rule of statutory construction? I can't speak. What is the rule of statutory construction for an ambiguous provision in the Workers' Compensation Act by our Supreme Court? you resolve the ambiguity in terms, of favor, in terms of the employee, in terms of coverage. Now, it's not like you have a factual dispute. Hey, you know, factual 50-50, you break the tie, it goes to runner. That's not what that rule says. That, this rule says if the statute is truly ambiguous, you are obligated to resolve it in the employee's favor. But
2: the point I was getting at is there's only an ambiguity if we assume that total loss of wage earning capacity is some sort of complex term of art and not just something that a legislature put in a law and expected to, to use ordinary English usage, the kind of, you know, stop the person on the street, what's it mean, usage? So you know, why, why isn't that, what are the indications here that they were trying to use some complex term of art, when if they wanted to do that, they could have just said total disability here?
1: You know, they could have, and we have case law that looks at total disability. We also have case law that looks at total loss of earning capacity, and it means the same thing. Now, now again, there's some, there's some wording in here that I don't particularly like when it comes to retirement. I mean, I mentioned the 800-pound gorilla. You know, why isn't this a retirement system? Our legislature addressed that. It, it addressed business and industry's concerns. There's some trade-off going on here. Um, and we can talk about that in a second, but the, the truth of the matter, for, for, since 1929, since we've had the Workers' Compensation Act, disability has only meant loss of earning capacity. Only meant. And it's in the statute. I mean, again, we have a definitional section that says, this is what disability is. And it's in the different word order there, too. So, you know, are they using it consistently across the board? No. Is it the same word order? No. Are they talking about different things? No. Because all the cases have treated it that way. And, and it would really be, you know, if, if we're focusing only on word order here, you know, disregard the 34 cases from this court. Disregard the seven cases from the Supreme Court. And there's some after 2011 that have Looked at total disability with these words too. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to pull the bunny out of the magic hat and come up with a new definition. When there's nothing in the statute that changes it, um, I you you know, I don't mean to be flippant. Look at what they did to Pluto. You know, for 87 years we celebrated that Pluto was a planet, and we said yay. And we named Disney characters after. And then sometime you know not too remote ago, they said, well, guess what, Pluto's it's not really a planet anymore. Um, so a couple things have happened. Was it the Death Star that came in and blew it up? Not necessarily, but what did happen is they changed the definition of a planet. And what we have to look here is that after 500 weeks, did the standard of disability change from the competitive labor market model, where you have to compete with others in the job despite your injuries, despite your, your pre-existing conditions, despite you know the goods and the bads that your employer hired you for when you can earn money. Just when you became a liability, you got to be out looking for work. Did the standard change all of a sudden in 500 weeks? The statute answers that. It answers it in subsection B. And it's the last sentence. It says, The employee shall not be entitled to compensation. Again, compensation highlighted in blue. It's because we've known what that word means. It's defined, it means disability, table for disability. But the compensation is pursuant to this subsection, pursuant to subsection B greater than 500 weeks from the first day of disability, unless you qualify under subsection C. The compensation payable for extended compensation is still payable under subsection B. They do not dispute that subsection B follows the competitive model of wage earning capacity.
0: Are you and, saying, but, I'm just making I understand, it, it, is the difference here in the argument is one side saying, or the commission said, she's physically able to do a job and you're saying, no, the standard needs to be that she would, she could get a job and do the job. The, the difference... hire her to do the job. Is that... Is that, is that no,
1: the there's an a, a older case that really...
0: Because she said a competitive labor market. Would she be able to go get a job at Walmart as a greeter or whatever? I'm just, whatever. I mean, it remains to be would, seen. Would they hire her for doing that? So that that's
1: the big question. So the com- that, that's you're the saying, question.
0: Is your, is your beef, is the commission, didn't make that finding?
1: No, our beef is... The commission relied on the vocational testimony of Pamela Harris, who is a vocational expert, who did a labor market survey. Now, we've had cases in the side of the materials, labor market surveys don't do anything except say these jobs exist. And and the evidence is clear, there was never a job job offer made out of any of these jobs. Now, does that match up with what our law is? The the same year, the same amendment that our legislature changed, 1997-29, they added a definition of suitable employment and subsection 22 of the definitional statute, 97-2. What is the very first sentence required of suitable employment? It's a job offered to the injured worker. Now, what do we know about job offer? What does the injured worker have to do? Well, they actually have to go out there and apply for work to get that offer. Tell us about that process. Are they the only person on earth applying for that job? No, they're competing with everyone else in the market applying for that job. And the employer has to look at them and say, you know, I can take someone who's who's in their late fifties or sixties with a whole lot of health issues and, you know, ninth grade education and work restrictions, or I can take this college graduate who's young, healthy. Which one of those two applicants is going to get that job? That's the competitive market that we're talking about. It's peoples versus colon mills corporation that, that Gave rise to that. And the problem, this is what the legislature fixed by adding that definition of suitable employment. Peoples versus Cole Mills said that when you offer work that's unsuitable, it doesn't prove wage earning capacity. The problem with Peoples is it uses this word proffer, it doesn't use the word offer. So it raises a really good question. You know, okay, if, if an insurance company or an employer comes up with a makeshift work that you know, doesn't exist anywhere else, that, hey, we're going to create this job especially for you, it's a shelter workshop. Does that really reflect wage earning capacity in the, in the open market? And the answer is no. People's answered that. But it raised a really good question, and it says, well, what happens if, you know, to extend the period of disability unfairly, an injured worker gets a legitimate job proffered to them? Or, or the insurance company or vocational rehabilitation says, hey, we found a legitimate job for you, and it's turned down. We don't know whether... One, you can actually get the job, or, or two, whether it really is indicative of wage earning capacity. And that was litigated over and over for years and years and years in the workers' compensation system. And then uh, I forget what year it was, but it was Johnson versus Southern Tire and Sales uh, Supreme Court case that said you don't need an actual job offer. You need to show that the jobs are available. So, what became popular at that point? Labor market surveys. Look at all these jobs you could do. You know, you just have to, you know, offer doesn't matter, we just have to show they exist out there. The 2011 amendment, the addition to suitable employment, added the requirement of a job offer. It overruled Johnson. It says you need to actually get a job offer. And What does that mean again? What well, means you have to go compete with others to, to apply for that job and actually get hired? Whose burden is it? Is it the employee's burden?
0: Absolutely. Yes, sir. It's the employee's burden, so the employee's got to put on evidence that I but I tried and couldn't get a job.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the, talking about the 800 pound gorilla, wasn't just a, a free ride right to retirement. There are three things in the statute that the legislature changed in this amendment. And uh, so before you get that, I want to ask yes,
2: you sir. about the, I want to go back to the language of C, because this is the question I have. If, I, if we adopt your interpretation, so the statute starts off and says an employee may qualify for extended compensation in excess of the 500 week limitation on temporary total disability then move on here, if, you know, unless blah, 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 all these different things. And then the employee shall prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the employee has sustained a total loss of wage earning capacity, which you are, your interpretation is that just means total disability. Correct. So isn't it odd to say, unless the employee shall prove by a preponderance of the evidence that the employee has sustained a total disability, when you've already, that's already been proven. And there's no temporal. No, word.
1: it's not odd. Um, and I'm going to. I know I'm not supposed to talk about cases outside the ones we cited. This it's Watkins versus Central Motor Lines. It's a Supreme Court case that says if you've been to a previous hearing and gotten an opinion award by the Commission, there is a presumption of disability. And what this means, so there's not an ongoing you know, free ride to retirement. What this amendment does is it does away with the Watkins presumption after 500 weeks. It, it flips the burden of proof back to the employee, no matter what
3: they got a it's it's a whole new it's yeah. a whole new case you no longer have that presumption you've yeah. got to prove it again
1: and, and i apologize for not citing that case in the brief but that's exactly what that but part the, of the, the said.
2: point i'm getting at is you're essentially saying in order for the legislature to have achieved what you know your friends are going to argue they did here they would have had to have said only if the employee proves by preponderance the evidence that the employee sustained a total total loss of wagering which is just a really weird thing to say. I mean, total is a word that has a meaning. It's,
1: You know, so. it, it's weird unless you are a workers' comp lawyer, which means you're weird anyway, and you speak your own language. And, again, for decades and decades, we read words like loss of wagering capacity, total, partial. We don't blink an eye. We know exactly what those words mean. And the courts knew exactly what those words mean. So when our legislature picked up the ball and ran with it and planted it, In the statute, that was part of the deal. That was part of the deal. Um, So, going, you know, I keep wanting to go back to the 800 pound gorilla because they make the argument that look, look, this is converting it to retirement, which is what we tried to avoid. The legislature addressed that here, and it did it in three ways. First of all, it, it, it dealt with the burden of proof, it did away with the the Watkins versus Central Motor Lines presumption. It it flipped the burden of proof back to the injured worker. That's number one. Um, And there's two places right here. uh, one the employee has to apply for, it, and we'll put another one right there. Um, Now, the second way it, it did it is it doesn't let us test the waters for extended compensation until 425 weeks into the process. And what that means is they don't want people to run to the courthouse immediately after an injury to say, hey, let's turn this into a retirement plan. You have to wait for it and make sure you're going to be out that long. And that gives the employer ample opportunity to do vocational rehabilitation if they won't take them back to work there. I mean, that's, that's everyone's hope is you get your old job, earning your old money. Everyone's happy. Um, and frankly, it's the safest way and, and the least expensive way to resolve workers' cop claims, in all honesty. But when someone can't go back to work old job because of an injury has to look elsewhere you've got vocational rotation, and maybe that produces were a a new job maybe it doesn't but 425 weeks in is about what's that eight years in it's a pretty long time and you've had you know some some time to figure that out and say okay maybe it's gonna be beyond 500 weeks Um, and that's the second reason why the the legislature the retirement but the big reason is is what's down here and it's actually on the next page here, too, but it's the credit for Social Security retirement, which, you know, I'm going to point to the word that bothers me a little bit, Um, because the retirement credit, you know, you get full Social Security retirement, and it says uh, right here, the employer, let me scoot this up, because I see a little blue light here that might indicate the range of your (laughs) line of sight, it says, um, the employer may reduce the extended compensation. All right, that's, and again, I'm not saying this is incorrect. I'm just saying this is what troubles me a little bit, because what are they talking about Reduce, reducing injury compensation? I want to show you what's on the record at page eight, and this is small print, but this is what's called Form 60. This is what the Industrial Commission form is that they accepted the claim years and years ago, and it has two numbers here, one in blue and one in red, and the one in blue is the average weekly wage, which is $708.52. The compensation rate is $472.37, and that never changes. There's not a cost of living increase. There's not an inflationary increase. That never changes. But going back to the extended – I'm sorry. Going back to the retirement credit, social security retirement credit, it says you get to reduce the compensation by social security retirement. So you're taking a taxable governmental benefit that you earned elsewhere – And it doesn't affect the average weekly wage, the higher amount. It affects the compensation rate, the lower number. And that's by the plain language of the statute. Now, what does that mean in practical real terms? I know this is just an illustration, but I'm going to share this with you. And this is just a printout from the Social Security Administration. They just say that on average, um, people who get social retirement average $1,669 a month. That's just you know, again, this is just for illustrative purposes. But if you go and you you calculate out after full retirement age what injured workers gave up in this amendment, You know, you're 67 years old, life expectancy of 16.1 years, 52 weeks a year, you multiply the compensation rate, $472.32 over that life expectancy, it comes to almost $400,000. That's the retirement package they were critical of. And you know what? You look at that big number and you, it's hard to argue against that, in all honesty. that's a big number. With the Social Security retirement credit, you take the 1669 on average that, that Social Security pays out. You look at the compensation right here, it um, comes out to almost $1,900. It comes out to $46,000. This amendment decimates what they've got to pay out during retirement years. It, it cures any allegation that there's a retirement package here.
0: I, I so have a of proof question.
1: Yes, sir. Um, so your client
0: expert said that Ms. Betts cannot work. Is that correct? Correct. And the defendant brought forth evidence says so she can work. So if she can work, wasn't it incumbent upon you to put forth evidence? If that's what they found, the fact that I guess that necessarily meant that she never wanted to go try to find a job. No, that, she didn't meet She didn't. It's her burden to show a that if she is able to work, that she wasn't able to find a job. Yeah, that's
1: a fair question. There are four methods of proving disability under Russell's, uh, Russell versus Lowe's Product Distribution. One of them is for partial disability. So let's just count no, that one out. So the first one is you are medically totally disabled or psychologically totally disabled. Doctor says you can't do any work. The other two require the ability to do some work, which means you've got some work restrictions. You can lift two pounds, which 10 is pounds. Which what
0: the commission found.
1: Yeah. All right, so so number two is the some restrictions plus a reasonable job search, even if it's unsuccessful. You have to produce evidence of a reasonable job search.
0: Which was not done here, is that correct? Which was not done here.
1: Okay. Um, and there's some good case law, Fletcher versus Dana Corporation. I could you know, talk to you about what a reasonable job search is, but that was not done here. Number three is futility. Um, and number three looks at pre-existing conditions like age, education, age education lack, tr- lack of transferable work skills, um, you know, and the Supreme Court says, look, there are other factors out there too that, that play into disability. the Russell, factors aren't, Russell methods aren't exclusive, but there's some other factors out there. Now, Ms. Sawyer-Little, who is our vocational expert, said, look, if you look at these vocational factors, it's futile to look for other work. That is the standard for social security disability. Um, and I'm not sure this is cited in the uh, briefs either, but it's the recent Monroe versus uh, MV um, transportation case that I tried up here that was remanded to commission for, to look at that. Um, their vocational expert just says, hey, we got a labor market survey, and guess how many jobs are over on Hillsborough Street and over here in Cary? There's like 20 jobs, no job offers, no job searches. And that's where they're, you know, they're turning, they're arguing against a free ride to retirement. They're wanting a free pass out of extended compensation because guess how old Miss Betts is? She's 54 years old. She doesn't get Social Security retirement. And at age 54, when the five hundred weeks runs out, if the if the standard is not a competitive market model like people says it is, and like subsection B says it is and traditional concepts of disability and loss of wagering capacity, who pays for her between age 54 and when she can qualify for social security disability? Two words, Uncle Sam. And if you go back and you... Feel, uh, you're running a low on
2: time, and I wanna go yes. back to the text, because none of this will matter if we, you know, if we determine the text gives us the answer one way or the other. So the, one of the arguments you made in your brief was you know, you pointed out that the legislature, this, this is exact words of the reason, the legislature could have used words like total loss of physical ability to do even sedentary work. But it instead chose this phrase that you say is this loaded phrase because the courts have loaded it with a bunch of money. Right. The problem is total loss of physical ability to do even sedentary work wouldn't cut it. Because you'd also need total loss of mental ability to do any work that would need to be covered. There's a whole bunch of different things. Right. So you ask yourself, what is just the simplest, most concise way in plain English to, dis- to sum up all those potential permutations yeah. into one thing, say forevermore not able to make any money. Yeah. You'd say total loss of wage earning capacity. So the, I think the, the issue we're going to hear from your friends is it doesn't matter what the courts have said that phrase means in combining different things. The legislature never used the phrase before. So they don't have to be stuck with what the courts have said. They can just use plain English, and we have to follow the rule that we use that ordinary meaning. So
1: well, they, and I disagree with you with respect. I, don't, I think the legislature has used those words before, so it's not in the same order. But you know, one I said at the start, this is a pure question of statutory construction. What is the rule? The, the rule is, if a statute, use, and this is, again, come from Justice Scalia, if a statute uses words or phrases that have already received authoritative construction by the jurisdiction's court of last resort, or even uniform construction by inferior courts, they are to be understood according to that construction. You've got 34 cases from this court that look at that phrase. You've got seven from the Supreme Court that look at that phrase. They've got none, none.
2: But the point I'm getting at is, suppose they look at that and they say, these are the words we want to use. Because in ordinary English, this yes. accomplishes our goal. But the courts have said that this means something else. So now we've got to sit around and try to come up with an original way to say it that's not using the words that are the natural ones you'd use for this meaning and come up with some really clunk, why can't the legislature just say, dang it, we'll use it, it, the plain it, meaning and, you know, the courts use something different in the past, but we don't have, you know, we don't have to be bound by what they, well, it they was, interpret
1: words. to go back to the other rule construction is you can't do that when the context indicates that they bear a technical sense. I'm reading that directly from reading law. I mean, well, and that's what I'm getting at is what, where in this does it indicate
2: that they, the legislature wanted to adopt a meaning that the courts had imposed on these words and not just they wanted to use the most convenient words to sum up the By the
1: mere fact they use those words. That's not coincidence. That's not coincidence. And and what they're asking to believe is, hey, let's create something. This is not an invitation for judicial legislation. If you create a new definition that departs from that precedent, that is judicial legislation. The rules of statutory construction say, look at, what, look at where these words came from. They were deliberate, they were chosen, they are there. And the role of this court is not to rewrite those words with all respect, it's to interpret them. And you've got to look at that precedent. you got to look at the background it came from. I've got 19 seconds left. I'm going to We'll
0: give Well, you sit down, we'll give, yeah, you, down, we'll give, you, <laughs> we'll give you your time because you're answering questions. And we'll give, we'll give the police some extra time, too. Let's see how we're doing.
4: May it please accord. I'm Heather Haney from the Attorney General's Office. I'm appearing on behalf of the Department of Health and Human Services and Cherry Hospital. Um, and as Your Honor anticipated, We're here because extended compensation is a new form, statutory form of compensation available to claimants who've experienced a complete destruction of the ability to earn wages. You've heard the arguments from the plaintiff that extended compensation is nothing more than a showing of disability. But this renders the language of 97.29 B and C moot. It goes against the plain language of the statute and it goes against the the legislative intent in enacting the amendments to the statute.
0: So… What do you think it means?
4: I think that the industrial commission got it right your honor the plain meaning of total loss of wage earning capacity is a complete destruction of the ability to earn wages. And this is clear and unambiguous language and as counsel pointed out this has been used before in prior cases but those cases dealt with disability.
0: What if I have it what if I have a skill but there's no job market at all right now for it am I totally disabled or totally loss of wage earning capacity because the only skill I have there's no market for right now and would I be entitled to this compensation until the market came back and then the employer could come in and show hey you can get a job now.
4: Well your honor if those are the only facts and the the medical providers agree the medical records agree the vocational uh, evidence agrees certainly if you would be rendered completely incapable of so earning So there is wages. a
0: market component I guess whether there's a market is that what you're admitting is that, is that,
4: Right, Your Honor. Certainly there is some market component here, but not nearly to the extent of disability. Uh, Disability in our prior case law has been imbued with these factors, the Russell factors, the definition of suitable employment, um, that's rendered legitimate wage earning opportunities uh, irrelevant in a discussion of disability. So, here, people, people with wage earning capacity have continued to receive these lifetime temporary total disability benefits um, and that's what 9729 B and C are meant, is meant to correct. So the standard for extended compensation fixes this problem by simply asking, can this per- person earn wages in any capacity, full stop? If they can, they're not entitled to the extended compensation under the statute. And we can look at the plain language of the statute when we're looking through 9729 B and C, Uh, As Your Honor pointed out, the legislature chose to juxtapose the term temporary total disability with the term extended compensation. Certainly, if these are the same standard, there would be no reason to use two separate terms to describe them. We also can look at the plain language of the statute to ensure that all of the factors imbued in a showing of disability don't apply to a showing of extended compensation, by looking at subsection D, which deals with permanent and total disability. So there, the legislature enumerated four ways that a claimant can show entitlement to permanent and total disability. Three of those ways, the legislature allows the employer that it, to then come back and rebut a showing of permanent and total disability. But to do that, the legislature specifically said that the employer must show by a preponderance of the evidence that the employee is capable of returning to suitable employment pursuant to 97.222. That language is notably absent in subsection C. So certainly if the legislature intended for all these other factors, the Russell factor, suitable employment to apply to an analysis of extended compensation, they would have included this same language in subsection C. So. If the, if the language is not clear and ambiguous enough, we can look at the legislative intent here. And the amicus brief for the defendant does a great job of setting out how we got here and how we got to the statutory amendments, uh, to, uh, specifically to 9729. And uh, the amicus.
2: Do, do you agree with um, with your friend for the plaintiff that the um, that loss of wage earning capacity and disability are synonyms?
4: No, Your Honor, they are not similar. What
2: about if we said as um, terms of art in the workers' compensation context, would you agree so, they mean the same?
4: So, I don't agree that they mean the same thing, Your Honor. I understand the case law that's come before where the disability has been discussed in terms of loss of wage earning capacity. But I think an important distinction here is that disability is not defined by loss of wage earning capacity because it's already defined by the Act uh, in 97.2. Extended compensation is not defined in the Act and neither is this phrase total loss of wage earning capacity. I think it makes sense that the legislature chose to use a familiar term uh, that fits in the rest of the scheme of the Workers' Compensation Act as its plain meaning. It doesn't change the meaning in dealing with disability, but in disability, this is a temporary standard that now runs for 500 weeks until it becomes a clean showing of a total loss of wage earning capacity.
2: Well, what about your friend's argument that, um, you know, e- even if they're not necessarily uh, synonyms, that the, the that Uh, Total loss of wage earning capacity is a phrase that's used in uh, our legal decisions. And in the the court's opinions, it's provided a definition that means total disability. And so at most, what you have is an ambiguity, because you have plain language in ordinary meaning, plain language in the term of art usage in workers' compensation law. And this is a statute dealing with workers' compensation law, so both are reasonable interpretations. And then we're into the rules about how to construe an ambiguous provision. What What's your take on that?
4: So, and, and I agree. I disagree that the prior case law discussing disability renders this language ambiguous. Ambi- excuse me, uh, ambiguous because as I said, disability is defined already in the act, so certainly a loss of wage earning capacity is a component of disability and discussed under prior case law, but now this is a new, extended compensation is a new stat, a new uh, compensatory statutory scheme of compensation available to claimants where we're taking out the Russell factor, factors and suitable employment and even case law discussing that a claimant can testify that pain uh, is enough to render them uh, disabled. All of that is now removed from this language that that has been associated with temporary total disability in the past, but now is being used on its face uh, without the the other uh, accompanying factors that go along with a showing of disability. So, looking at the legislative intent, though, if the court does determine that the language is ambiguous, um, as I was saying about the defendant's amicus brief, it really does a great job of setting out how we got here and. Uh, how this act, the Reformation Act came to be uh, because they, they uh, excuse me they reviewed a study uh, showing that North Carolina had the highest total calls per claim out of the state studied uh, for workers compensation cases and of our neighbors we are the only state without a statutory cap on temporary total disability benefits. So that's what this Reformation Act was meant to address. Um, And, in fact, in the first version of the act, there was a 500-week cap period. So there was no other way to receive disability benefits after that 500 weeks except to qualify for permanent and total disability. This is where extended compensation came into existence. It was born out of a compromise. Rather than being this end-all be-all 500-week standard as it was originally written, it's now, it allows a safety net for claimants who, would not fit under the clean form of the the four enumerated factors under permanent total disability uh, but still are experiencing a total destruction of the ability to earn wages. So we can see from legislative intent that the the purpose of the cap on temporary total disability benefits was certainly not to uh, enact this arbitrary 500 week showing of ongoing disability. Uh, That renders not only the the plain language of the statute moot, to be using the two separate terms rather than just inserting disability, uh, but it goes against the legislative intent which is to stop this ongoing, often lifetime receipt of benefits under the temporary total disability benefits scheme. Let me ask you a
0: question, because I'm I'm just still trying to understand workers' comp a little bit. So, (laughs) if if I'm within the 500 weeks and I have a loss of wage earning capacity. That means I'm disabled if I have a loss of wage or incapacity. Does that mean is that the suitable employment if it's within that five hundred weeks?
4: Yes, Your Honor. Suitable employment does apply to the first five hundred. So if I'm
0: weeks. able to get some job that's not suitable employment, that doesn't count against me. If that's the only job I can get is something that's not suitable, I can that doesn't count against me and I can still get my maximum benefits during those five hundred weeks.
4: Right. You would be not be obligated to take a, a job that's not suitable. And
0: if I and if I took the job that wasn't suitable, does that count against me or not really? Does that offset? Uh,
4: well, it wouldn't count against you, Your Honor, but if you're earning wages um, and you're agreeing to perform some job, um, you would be entitled into temporary partial disability benefits by virtue of the fact that you're earning the wages. Um, but there's nothing that a defendant could do to say, hey, this person could get this job, um, even though it's a, it's a made-up job, it doesn't exist in the labor market. The defendant couldn't force anyone to— Is that to-
0: phrase, loss of wage earning capacity, used to describe— the suitable employment aspect in the 500 weeks in in the statute, is that in the statute?
4: So suitable employment under 97.2 actually comes into play after a claimant has already proven disability. Um, So they're already receiving disability and it's a mechanism that the defense typically uses to say, look, these suitable jobs are available in the labor market. you know, so this person is, not, is no longer disabled because they'd be capable of suitable
3: employment.
0: Because I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this phrase in C as being right in the middle of these two phrases in D, S- returning to suitable employment and being able to return to work in any capacity. Return to work in, I mean, they could have used that phrase. That would have made it very clear, I guess, that the, the General Assembly had said that in, in C has, is unable to return to work in any capacity rather than just has sustained a total loss of wage earning capacity that might have been a better way to say it if that's if that was a, to get your interpretation
4: I don't disagree your honor I think that, that I think your that's synonymous. These,
0: so, so this phrase I guess is it in the middle
4: so actually I, I would agree that I know there's a, a nice chart and uh, the reply brief in this case and I would agree that subsection C is kind of a hybrid of subsections B and D. I mean
0: that the phrase total loss of earning capacity is that in the middle between um, ability to do suitable employment and total this inability to work in any capacity I'm just trying to I'm just trying to understand what the, that phrase means
4: so total loss of wage earning capacities m- means not even earning wages in- in a part-time job so inability to earn so you're
0: saying that's equivalent to saying inability to work in any capacity
4: yes your honor that that's
0: my position but they just they decide to use a different phrase there
4: well and i think they used a phrase that's familiar under the workers compensation act as uh mr somewhat pointed out we have our own language in our own terms and workers they use com- this
0: other phrase in this workers comp st- statute indeed indeed it's pretty clear work in any capacity that to me is the most obvious way to say it I guess that's language I'll use, too, because they stuck it in there.
4: Yes, Your Honor, that is language that we also use. So uh- you're
0: saying loss total loss of wage earning capacity is equivalent t- to being unable to work in any capacity?
4: Yes, Your Honor.
0: They're the same thing. And they, you, don't think, you don't think that means inability to work in a suitable thing, but.
4: Correct. That inability to work in a suitable in suitable employment applies only to disability prior to the 500 weeks. Uh, this can't possibly mean the same for all the reasons I've, I've talked about. Just the plain language of the statute, the, the legislative intent in enacting the statute, it can't mean the same thing after the 500 weeks when we're doing an
3: analysis like here of extended compensation. Do we do we get to legislative intent? Okay. Um, do we get to legislative intent? only if we conclude that the language is ambiguous?
4: It's my understanding, yes, Your Honor, that if the court is unable to uh, discern the, the meaning of the statute and the way it should be applied, uh, then you move on to an analysis of legislative intent in enacting the, the statute or the amendment in this case.
3: If you get get past the threshold of saying this language is ambiguous, how do we prioritize the legislative intent with the general precedent that ambiguity is resolved in favor of the employee? Yeah,
4: and and thank you for that question. I think that's an excellent question because the act, we all know, should be liberally construed uh, to affect the the protection of the plaintiff. But here, we're not asking the court to strictly construe the statute at all. Uh, instead, Instead, we're just looking at the way that the legislature wrote it, the plain meaning of the uh, language that the legislature used, which is that extended compensation must have a, a component of a total loss of wage earning capacity. And so, so that's the plain language of the statute, uh, not a strict construction. Uh, that's just how it was written, and this was essentially a course correction by the legislature to address these cases of lifetime temporary total disability benefits. Does that answer your
3: question? It, it 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 does and i guess i'm just looking like this and coming back conceptually because uh, the interpretation that um mr Zumwalt's arguing is a more liberal yeah. construction right is to say um no you don't you don't have to meet this new test and what i'm hearing you're saying is the whole point of the statute was to create a new test and that um, that to construe it in favor of the employee, um, it, I mean, wouldn't that be a more liberal interpretation? How do we distinguish between a liberal interpretation and I guess what you're arguing is it just can't be?
4: So I understand, Your, Your Honor, uh, the, the, the question about the liberal construction uh, being more compatible with plaintiffs proposal that this is nothing more than a showing of disability, Um, but here, I mean, going back to legislative intent, which I do think is important to talk about in this case, regardless of the uh, clear and unambiguous language, the cap was meant to encourage and incentivize employees to prepare for a return to the labor market. Up until now, that hasn't been done, so this is giving people almost 10 years to ask to uh, participate in job retraining to uh, under 9732.2. this vocational rehab they can go attend college classes uh, to retrain to return to the labor market if they're not able to return to the capacity that they were in when they were injured so there's just not been any incentive under a standard of disability for employees to seek out these opportunities and in fact often vocational rehab was used as a tool by the defendant instead of the plaintiff as i think it properly should be i think this is a perfect case of that actually you know, Miss Betts at hearing testified that she had these impediments that would prevent a return to sedentary employment because of her inability to type and do other uh, tasks that would be required of, of typical sedentary employment-type jobs. Now, there's other evidence that contradicted this, uh, to include her use of. The computer and the vocational experts' testimony that she did have basic computer skills. But if that were a concern, the statutory scheme anticipates that Ms. Betts would have taken advantage of 9732.2 and asked for computer retraining classes or whatever medical office assistant classes or whatever training she feels she needs in order to jump back into the labor market at the expiration of her 500 weeks. So to date, we're just not seeing that done with claimants, and that's what this statute is meant to do, to give someone plenty of time to prepare for a return to the labor market rather than just collecting the the temporary total disability check endlessly. And that's what this statute was intended to correct, and we can see that in Representative Falwell's presentation. So in in tying all of this in with, with the facts of this claim, The Industrial Commission uh, correctly held that the plaintiff does have wage earning capacity. Uh, They found in their conclusions of law that plaintiff's counsel in oral argument noted that plaintiff could certainly perform two hours of work a day. So this is wage earning capacity, and this is exactly what the statute anticipates, being able to earn wages not necessarily in a full-time career, but in some capacity, thereby terminating temporary total disability benefits. What plaintiff's asking the court to do is essentially reweigh the evidence in this case in favor of uh, Pamela, or excuse me, Julie Sawyer Little, uh, her Voke expert, but this expert was uh, not only outweighed by Pamela Harris, the the other Voke expert, but also by both testifying doctors in this case um, and plaintiff's own volunteer activities throughout this nearly 10 years that she participated in Girl Scout troop leading, Boy Scout troops, uh, her kids' PTA, church activities, all of these leading and organizing and reliability uh, jobs that show real-world transferable job skills here. So the Industrial Commission correctly gave the greater way of the evidence to Pamela Harris and the uh, treating surgeon, Dr. Thompson. And Julie Sawyer Little also, I'll note, Your Honor, based on her deposition, she testified actually that her opinion was based on plaintiff not being able to return to a 40-hour work week so again that's not what we're looking at here uh, with respect to extending compensation we're not looking at a full-time job
3: so So if she could have returned to work for 10 hours a week she could not have shown under your interpretation total loss of her incapacity certainly are
4: yes we believe that that was the intent of the legislator, le- legislature, and that's the only interpretation that does not render subsections B and C entirely moot. So, we're asking the court to affirm the Indu- Industrial Commission's interpretation of the plain language of the statute, holding that uh, a claimant must prove a total loss of wage earning capacity, that is, complete destruction of the ability to earn wages. Uh, to receive extended compensation. Um, To plaintiff's point about uh, dependent... Whether it's
0: suitable or not, whether it's a suitable or not job.
4: Correct, Your Honor. Just wage earning capacity, the the analysis of suitable employment, um, as you can see, I pointed out in subsection D, they specifically wrote that into the statute in subsection...
0: She's got to to show that either I can do nothing or whatever I can do, there's there's no jobs out there right now yes either, right. either one of those th- those are the two ways she could prove it i guess
4: well and i think it's, it's going to be a, a question for the trier of fact uh exactly understand that but that's, yeah. that's the, that's the yes. evidence
0: she would have to put up there is either i can't do anything that the, the, to do any job or the things that i can do there's just no jobs out there right now
4: right well right and I, or a medical provider testifies this person absolutely cannot work and yeah, I I, I, yeah.
0: whatever yeah whatever the evidence is that's right there's one of those two yes. things if they could show one of those two things yes both right. those things i guess yes Or either one, I guess,
4: yeah. Right. And so, you know, to Council's point uh, that this would result in in a claimant being dependent on Uncle Sam, so to speak, uh, if, if they're unable to earn wages. If they're unable to earn wages, certainly they would uh, stay on extended compensation. That's the point of the standard is to act as a catch-all for people who don't fit within the four enumerations in subsection D for permanent and total disability, um, but still cannot earn wages. And therefore, they will actually stay off of any type of welfare system from the state and stay on extended compensation by meeting their burden to show that they cannot earn no wages in any capacity. So, in conclusion, we just asked the court to affirm the Industrial Commission's uh, opinion and award, finding that the plaintiff in this matter is not entitled to extended compensation. She does have wage earning capacity, as shown by the preponderance of the evidence. Um, and thank you.
1: I'm not sure how much time I have left. I'll you name it, it. I'll yeah, I have a question, so yeah, it's,
2: not, it's not counting yet. Okay. Okay. So um, I just want to clarify something with you. Is there anywhere in the Workers' Compensation Act where the words "total" and "partial" appear in front of loss of wage earning capacity?
1: Yeah. And the heading of Section 9729. That's one of the things I'm going to point out. The title, the heading of Section 9729, says "Rates and Duration of Compensation for Total Incapacity." The very next clause is when an employee qualifies for total disability, and I don't know how you don't reconcile those two to mean the same thing.
2: Wait, Was that the phrase, total or partial? Let me just ask the question I'm getting okay. to. Is that, if, um, I certainly am, am persuaded that the, if you saw the words total disability and partial disability, that the words, and the legislature is using those uh, phrases, that total and partial when they're speaking in disability, has a meaning that's different than what the ordinary, especially the ordinary meaning of the word total. Correct. The question I'm trying to understand is why we take that meaning that applies to total disability and partial disability and impute it into total loss of wage earning capacity just because disability happens to be one of the things that disability is, is loss of wage or incapacity. Why can't right. the legislature use a word that has an ordinary meaning?
1: I, I don't know why they didn't use a word. I just know that they use the words disability and incapacity interchangeably. The, the thing is, though, you, I sense, and I could be wrong, you want to clump them all together. Total is the adjective. Incapacity or disability is the, the noun that modifies. They mean different things. When we're talking about total or partial, you're talking about the degree of disability and you're talking about disability, the duration of disability is something completely different. You've got temporary disability. You've got permanent disability, which you know, they mentioned the suitability citation in subsection D. E- okay, the legislature also says you can't prove permanent disability in any other way than the ways we listed subsection D. So you got that at this extreme. You've got the temporary at this extreme. You've got it up to 500 weeks. The question is, what is in between? What is in between? And that's the extended compensation. It doesn't bring you to the... Verge of permanence, but it, it gets you past 500 weeks, even though you're not declared to be permanent.
3: Between temporary and permanent, I, I I,
1: yeah, I'm not sure the word "between" is accurate because I think with the statutory presumptions of the class is a permanent, it's not like you go through temporary for 500 weeks, go through extended, and all of a sudden you reach permanent. I, I don't think you can reach permanent that way. Um, but in terms of severity. Um, well, I, I don't even think it's that. It's just a durational thing. It's where it falls in the timeline because the severity is either partial or total, and that's the degree of disability. Um, it, it, and To address the permanent disability, you know, we heard the argument that, hey, look, the legislature could have put Section 97-2, Subsection 22, the definition of suitable employment, into the statute just like it did in Subsection D when talking about permanent and total disability. Guess what the legislature didn't do? It didn't put section 97 2, subsection 22, and subsection B. They're in the first 500 weeks. So, and, but what it did say though is that, again, that last sentence the employee shall not be tied to compensation pursuant to this subsection, subsection B, greater than 500 weeks from the date of first disability unless the employee qualifies for extended compensation under section, subsection C. And what that is saying is the compensation for the first 500 weeks, which is clearly based on the competitive model carries over after that for extended compensation. And that's not an ambiguity in the statute. The statute is saying that point blank. It's saying it's just a matter of duration, it's not a matter of degree. And that's, again, the, the degree is the total. So, the last question I want to ask is, yes, sir. It's the
2: other thing about disability is that the, it's meaning, if you take the loss of wage earning capacity, say it's a term of art that means disability, that that uh, defining one to mean the other really is just flowing in one direction. So I'm curious why the legislature would feel the inability to use loss of wage earning capacity and not adopt the term of art. Uh, if you were if using the word disability, I think your argument would be so much stronger that here, well, but you know, what, so co- explain to me why they can never go back now and just you have the ordinary meaning of those words. You
1: know, and that's a, it's a great question, and I can sit here and point you to the, the title, and I could, you know, I just had, you well, Justice Scalia, a title and heading can. The title and headings are permissible indicators of meaning. So we can look at that and say, okay, they're talking about incapacity there, and bam, the very next clause is total disability. I have no idea why the legislature used multiple phrases of it unless it, it's aware that if you look at all the cases over the past 80 years at this. The cases say loss of earning capacity, uh, wages lost due to injury. They they are all over the boards in terms of order and consistency, but we're talking about the same thing. Um, Just read the definition of disability in Section 97-2, Subsection 9, where it talks about the loss of earning capacity due to injury. That's that's what we're talking about: is the loss of the inability to compete with others for work because you've been injured. That's what keeps. That's what keeps injured workers from becoming public burdens. It's privatized the damages in the no-fault system, and there's trade-offs, no doubt. But the trade-offs—I mean, you got a whole bunch of legislative history here, 106 pages to the to the amicus brief. Great history lesson. But what we should focus on is what words are in the statute, and and what do we know about those words? Where were they used before? How do we how do we interpret those? And with all due respect to the industrial commission, because that's where I practice most of my time. It would be a separation of powers just to defer to their interpretation of it because they're an executive agency. That that's not this court's job is to defer to an executive agency. It's to say, okay, what is our legislature written? How do we interpret that? That's the court's job, and and y'all get that. Well, if,
3: if the legislature's defined it before, and I guess it's sort of a chicken and egg yeah. argument here uh, between counsel about about that, but if. If, if, if the panel were persuaded that this is the first, that this is a new thing, that this isn't controlled by precedent, then is it your argument that it would be wrong for this court to defer to the agency's interpretation? It,
1: there's two ways of looking at it. Okay. There's, a, I won't put this back on the envelope. There's, there's looking at it from the outside in, trying to figure out what the legislature tried to read their minds. And there's looking at it from the inside out saying, let's make a new standard, okay? If we make a new standard, the question then is how does the House of Cards fall? So, you look at this, okay, subsection A, when an employee qualifies for total disability, you know, it's here and, here and after provided by subsections B3D, what the court will have held is you, this isn't disability, yet you're talking about subsection C. You're overriding that part of the statute. When when you're saying that disability needs something completely different than incapacity, how do you reconcile the statutory heading with the first sentence of that? So you look at the consequences. If we held this, what happens to the rest of the act? If we endorse a life care planner who hasn't pointed to the first job offer, how does that show earning capacity when the definition of suitable employment says it's got to be a job offer? You know. So there's two ways of looking at it, and that's why you know here my pitch rise a little bit. I practiced this area for 25 years. If you dismantle the system, where does that leave us? <laughs> I mean, that's, the consequences of this are, are pretty dire. Um, but there was, a, there was a bargain struck in the room where it happened in 2011, and we know exactly what these words meant.
0: And last question, and C, you would say that, total, that that's talking about suitable jobs. It has to be a suitable, it has to be a because I guess under D, I'm totally disabled, and I'm not disqualified if I if I can do something that's not suitable. So why should it be any different for C?
1: Right, you're you're presumptively disabled, and, and it's a rebuttal even, presumption. But even though if I you can
0: do something that's not suitable, I, I, that doesn't disqualify me. So why should it disqualify right. me if I can do something that's not suitable?
3: Okay. And it, it, you 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 know you say that that the um, the state's you know position would be a dismantling of the entire structure of the Workers' Compensation Act and that there was a bargain struck. Um, um, You know, some lawyers are better at transactional law. Some lawyers are better at litigation. Um, I guess lawmaking is a little bit like transactional law. You have to think forward about the consequences. not that that you have any evidence about the legislative history, but is this really a shock to see that this argument's being made now? I don't, you know, given I don't, that there was a bargain. You
1: know, that, I don't. It doesn't shock me that the argument's going to be made because this is the discussion that went into that room where it happened, where they wanted a hard deadline, and we, you know, the legislature was ordered ordered us to work out a deal. And the deal is, you know, when it comes to legislation, you want it be a little bit. You don't want you don't want a solid. I mean, it'd be nice if you can get a one-size-fits-all thing for everyone, but you know, there's a little bit of room for argument there. But the truth of the matter is, when you're dealing with words that have 80 years of a history behind them, in every case that deals with disability under Workers' Compensation Act, there is no ambiguity there. And and you look at the carryover provision in the last sentence of subsection B. You look at the equation of incapacity and total disability and like that in the statute. It's you know. There's some things we can fight about, about, you know, it should be 425 weeks or 400 weeks and we'll deal that way, but when talking about the basic concept of disability, that's what this whole system is founded on. And it's founded on the ability, after an injury, to be able to compete with others who are a vocational advantage to you because they're not hurt. You can take 20
0: seconds to wrap up.
1: All right. And that's just it. I mean, it's the competitive market model that carries over. We have legislative authority for that in the last, section of, uh, last sentence of subsection B. Um, because if it were a hard deadline, there wouldn't be extended compensation. You've also got to construe the statute to where it doesn't lead to absurd results. And if it's just a matter of saying, hey, guess how many jobs are out in the economy without proving you can actually get one with an offer, as our legislature tells us? You're basically erasing subsection C. You don't have extended compensation. Thank you. Thank you, guys, for your arguments. Take it under advisor. Tchau.